0: Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: Player skill
2: versus projectable volume as it relates to ADP. That's our topic this week on Stealing Bananas. If you didn't catch the first episode where we talked about some bigger picture thoughts, some more macro level thoughts on this topic, um, check out our podcast feed and, and find that. This is going to be a little bit more specific, a little bit more about player-specific player, uh, player specific takes typically on our second ones, uh, our second episodes of the week. This is our first week. I'm a little rusty if you can't tell, but I'm Ben Gretsch. I'm joined by
1: Sean Siegel. Sean, how you doing? Awesome. We're going to talk about some specific players within the context of this. We're going to talk about some more about structural drafting, which is an important favorite topic for both of us. We're going to look at this idea of if you should be trying to get more talent into your lineup. So Ben, obviously fantasy owners want good players, right? But have we moved in the direction of volume to the point where maybe fantasy owners are hurting themselves by not drafting exciting enough players. I feel like we have this real tension to where the emphasis from an evidence-based perspective and an analytical perspective is often so heavily in the direction of volume. And then at the same time, we're telling listeners, we're telling readers, draft for upside. And I think that those two ideas are in conflict, right? And so we're somewhat doing a disservice if we're not explaining how they can get some of these things done. One of the things that I thought was interesting, I've even had some very bright, some of the the best analysts in the business tell me that in terms of looking at projections, the whole ball game or what they're looking at is like how accurate can they get their projection of volume and that they're not really concerned about efficiency at all. And I think that's interesting within the context of there being some things about, efficiency that give us edges, right? When efficiency is included, then the projections are more accurate when we're looking at guys who have upside. So one of the things that we know, for example, is a lot of efficiency numbers are not sticky in part because big plays are going to make a big difference, right? Or if you're talking about fantasy efficiency, the touchdowns are going to make a big difference. And yet if we ignore all of those things completely, we ignore the fact that you're wanting some exposure to players who could create long runs, right? You're wanting some exposure to players who are going to have a high touchdown percentage because we do know that there are elements of a player's profile that make him more or less likely to score touchdowns. And so if we're ignoring all of those things, then we're actually stealing from ourselves this opportunity to create exposure to the very thing fantasy owners want, which is upside.
2: Yes, and that's exactly... Exactly what I was gonna say and then complete agreement. We talked a lot about this in episode one as well, but we've we've come to feel that you know we can tend to have a little bit more narrow player pools that we're looking for, we're looking for more explosive players, but like what are those specific types of players? Well, one thing that I've come to recognize is that players that I think are propped up from an ADP perspective almost entirely by projected opportunity are players that are very easy for me to fate. And then on the flip side, players that I think are very good, but are their ADP, their their spot in drafts is just knocked down almost entirely because it's hard to project enough volume for them. Those are targets. I mean, that that is just, it, it has become, it has gone that far. The, the trends have gone so far. And when I say those trends, I mean that the fantasy football market loves vacated volume stats, loves talking about, uh, you know, positional competition, which I think does matter to a degree. And we're going to talk about that a little bit, but uh, relating projection directly to ADP you know, he projects his mind running back 15, he goes RB 20. So there's, there's value here. And those types of comments are so, uh, first of all, widespread, but also they're, 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 they're fragile. The A, a single projection is very fragile and it's too exact. It's too, um, confident vacated volume is too confident that the team is going to look similar with a whole new personnel. It, in all likelihood, it's going to change, uh, whether they pass more or run more or what have you. And so All of those types of assumptions are very wrong and are are often proved to be wrong. And the way that I would say it is that they're not always wrong. And so that's why people keep going back to it, that there are, you know, memorable situations where they're correct some years, but that they're not right as much as they're, or or they're wrong as much as they're right. They're not right more than they're wrong, which is, you know, you might as well flip a coin if you're only improving your odds 50% of the time. But to your point, when you're, when you're playing that way and when you're, when you're valuing things you know, just purely based on that type of uh, evaluation process, you're using picks for your roster that don't have the potential to be these explosive players that you were just describing, players that create long runs and long touchdowns and do cool things that are way more fun to draft anyway. They're fun to have on your team. Believe me, AJ Brown's fun to have on your team. And so you're drafting all these boring old players that you can't even convince yourself if you were trying have the potential to be a massive explosive outlier you know, the the talk of the season type of player, they could be good, but they're not gonna be massive wins. And and because of that, you every time you make that pick, you are boxing yourself out, as Sean just finished his last sentence, you're boxing yourself out of an opportunity to be, to be making the other pick that, that could actually help you win your league.
1: And Ben, you had this great question, I think, for us to think about in terms of how we're drafting, specifically within the context of this discussion. You said, are bad players propped up by volume, always bad bets? Do they ever have ceilings? And then that got me to be thinking about this idea of, okay, we talk a lot about structural drafting, I think, to the point where, at least for a row of his listeners and readers, you know, they can get tired of it. But I think this question actually fits very nicely into the overall structure that we're always telling people to get. So when we're looking at how we want to draft by position and there's, there's always this big pushback of, you know, why are you guys worrying about any of that kind of thing? Just take the best player. But I think it's interesting that the best player often really reinforces this idea of the structural draft work. So then the question that that kind of popped up for me was this idea of talent. Is this one of the reasons that elite tight end is so valuable because we have big talent gaps at that position? Is this one of the reasons that zero running back has worked in the past? And I think will work in the future because a lot of those backup running backs that we'd like to target are actually the more talented back. Is this one of the reasons that wide receiver is not as deep every year as people claim? And for people kind of pushing back on that, all you have to do is go in and check out the win the flex tool uh, from Blair Andrews and see what the, Implied scoring is by ADP all you have to do is go in and check out the best ball a win rate explorer and see the areas of a draft that wide receivers actually have plus win rates, you know, over expectation. It doesn't fit with the narrative, right? So if we're talking about those three elements is player talent really the thing that is pointing us in this direction, or at least kind of dividing out the way those players should come off the board. So in terms of talking about that, Ben, one of the questions, and I think interesting here in terms of individual players, maybe look at the, the running back position. We've had this idea on Rotovis or this topic where we look at big big gap backs versus small gap backs. Uh, Charlie had some good information on it uh, over the years. Jack Miller has recently written on it. And we see that when there is this small gap between the running backs, the second running back has a much better win rate than the first running back. I go back through the years and I was telling you that one of the reasons why I felt like zero running back not only has worked in the past, but in some ways it's just so easy is that those guys that we like to target are actually the talented players. So even if we're uncertain about their volume, going back to the idea of projections, uncertain about their volume over the first month, we can feel good that we're actually drafting the best player on that roster.
2: Yeah, and we're going to talk about some specific backfields in just a minute. Um, to, back to the, the comment about are bad players propped up or the question by, by the, that are propped up by volume projections, are they always bad bets? I think it's interesting because we did talk last episode about um, having a pretty narrow player field. The way that I would describe that, at least for me, is that I have targets and I want exposure to those targets. I, I want to make sure that I have uh, those guys on multiple teams. They're going to sort of define my season, but at the same time, there are, there's a difference between the rest of the players. There's a difference between players that I will not take anywhere that I I see as completely pretty, pretty poor bets, uh, even several rounds, if they were to fall behind where they're going typically. And then there are other players that I don't mind having some exposure to. And I think it is important to have a little bit, you know, of diversity in your portfolio. You're not always going to be perfect in all of your, in your takes, And I, I know from drafting with you, the similar, similar is true. You've surprised me with some takes before in some of our drafts where you've been like, yeah, I don't think it's bad to have a a share or two of this guy. He, he, he could be great. And and we are talking about looking at players in ways that they, you know, that have a lot of scenarios where they can smash. And then there's also players that have maybe a few scenarios where they could smash, not a ton, but a few. And then there's, uh, there's players that have none. And so I think it is important to recognize that there are, you know, various layers of, of players. Um, and, and so to that question about are there are there bad players prop- that are propped up by volume that are always bad bets, I think it's a case-by-case thing. Typically, that is the worst class of player, though, in my opinion. That is the one that I'm going to be avoiding the most, especially if I have a very confident opinion that they're bad. But there are some that you know, I don't know for sure if they're bad, and, and then their volume is enticing enough that I think it's okay that, 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 I, that I can make a case that there's you know some scenarios where they could be very good and be a player that's a, a pretty huge asset on my roster, even if they're not a clear target for me. Um, so before jumping into all the running backs, if I was curious about about your thoughts on that, as we talked about being really narrow with our player pools, you're still open to certain
1: types of players that aren't necessarily in your player pool, correct? Yeah, if they if they fall a long way. I, I do find that the most difficult guys to rank are not the people that we're drafting, but the people we're not drafting, right? It's It's harder to... Tell readers, okay, if you are the type of fantasy manager who likes this kind of guy and you're into the fifth round, and this player is dropped by a half a round, and they're two similar players who both have a bad profile in terms of scenarios for breaking out, you know, which one do you prefer? Those guys are harder to rank because mostly it's it's this idea of I eliminate I've eliminated them from my board entirely. But I think it's important to continue to ask the question in a variety of ways and make sure that you're not getting so narrow and so confident that anytime you get to the point where you're confident that you're right and everyone else is wrong or that a season has to turn out in a certain way, that's a good sign that you're not taking all the information into account or that just all your guys are going to get hurt. (laughs) So you want to have the humility with one of those things. In terms of this idea of bad players, propped up? Do they have a chance? I think that they do have a chance, right? And that's one of the reasons why they're drafting that range. But I want to be sure that I'm drafting players who, number one, that I believe in based on how I've worked through the scenarios, and then number two, historically, that they've had a chance, right? So we talk about what we think is going to happen, but what, what we're saying is when we've analyzed what's happened historically, in terms of specific player seasons and types of players and then we've analyzed this particular player and know what their background is And one of the things is just that anytime that you go through and you have someone who has had you know for their last five years they've been a very very good player in terms of generating production and they're being drafted in the same range as someone who for the last five years has been very mediocre but the one guy is expected to have more volume Uh, that's an easy choice for me right the the better player is going to carve out the volume as the season goes along. And I think that that's important to remember as we get back into topics like the running back dead zone. One of the things that I found and the really cool tools from Mike Beers were able to illustrate just so clearly uh, when we had those uh, starting several years ago on roto was this idea of, okay, well, we know that having a little bit of exposure to elite running backs, now that we're into an era where you have guys like a McCaffrey, you have guys like a Camara, you know, you have your Dalvin Cooks, your Saquon Barkley's, your Ezekiel Elliott's, some exposure there can be positive, but overall exposure is still negative, especially in some of these specific rounds. And I think it can get to where we're thinking, okay, well, just in this round, I have to avoid backs. And we've seen that happen a little bit this year where people are avoiding the running back dead zone by drafting those guys in the second round instead of the third round. And so you're like, you're drafting that profile that is a very losing profile just earlier in order to avoid the part that doesn't matter. It's not the round specifically. It's the fact that players in those rounds tend to have bad profiles. And so we have to understand the profiles of these guys and know that we're talking about, okay, well, these players are bad players, quote, you know, within the perspective of what they'd be expected to score, what we're paying for them. And just the odds are not in your favor. And if you want to win leagues, if you want to win big money in leagues, you have to be stacking your roster in every round with players where the odds are on your favor.
2: Yeah, and so when we look at projections, and and you talked on the last episode about uh, these midseason drafts, some that I was in, in in a league last year that we talked about, how they got more efficient to the type of structure that we like into the season. and And that sort of drives home this point that, you know, as you were talking there, it, it, it just reminded me, like, pro- projections are just a, a snapshot of what we expect going into week one, essentially. But everything changes in week one and week two and week three. So much changes in the first month of every NFL season. Just an, an amazing amount changes. And and then by midseason, to your point, these better players are earning more volume and all those things. In, in, in August, it feels like they can't, but then they always do. And so we have to know that this chaos is coming, that things are going to change, the things we can't expect might happen. Um, they won't always happen. And and people tend to cling, I think, to um, the bad outcomes for rookies or for players who haven't done it yet when they don't break out because they haven't seen it yet. But then when a when a veteran has a bad season, they don't they don't think it as much because they've already seen that player be good. So it's it's easier mentally to be like, oh, he just had a bad year. But when it's a rookie, it's like, oh, that was a bad pick. You know, you you were chasing upside that was never there. Well, that's usually debatable. I I, I tend to to believe that. You're gonna have misses, and 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 those misses happen. I mean, like I'm thinking about Mikael Hardman. I think Mikael Hardman was a fine pick where I was taking him last year. I'll defend that till the till the end of time. Uh, it didn't work out, <laughs> and that was always part of the bet. There was the possibility that that his role wouldn't grow significantly. Um, you put down a great question in our notes uh, about whether projections reinforce what we already know to be structurally efficient, and I think that's exactly right. And you kind of laid it out position by position. I think. The, the the problems with projections reinforce what we already know to be structurally efficient. The the fact that we actually think player skill is is more significant, enforces the fact that elite tight end is very valuable because the elite tight ends are better than the rest of the than the other tight ends, uh, by by quite a bit. I feel very very confident that Travis Kelsey, George Kittle, and Darren Waller are going to be very good this year. I don't feel nearly as confident about any of the other players. I like T.J. Hawkinson. I love Kyle Pitts' profile. Um, I'm even a little bit excited about Mark Andrews. I'm a little bit indifferent on him. But I was the same way about O.J. Howard and, and Hunter Henry and Evan Ingram a couple of years ago when they were a pretty exciting tight end four through tight end six. And those guys all kind of bombed that season. And we're always going to have reasons to like certain profiles and probably want a little exposure to those types of guys. But I, none of those guys are sure things this year. Those tight end four through tight end six that we just named. I, I really like Hawkinson. I know you do, too. And, and maybe he's the closest. But um, the, the top three are just known they are known and that they could fall off their concerns with age with with Kelsey especially he's getting up there but that is why we have seen that i mean that that is absolutely why and, and then you you say what well, is that one of the reasons zero Rb has worked yes and, and is that one of the reasons that wide receivers are not as deep as people claim yes because we're drafting the good receivers higher and later we're drafting wide receivers that we can project for volume but a lot of times they don't actually earn that volume they they get beat out by you know some some other wide receiver three or wide receiver four on their team, or they're just not earning targets. They're running a lot of empty routes. Uh, We know they're going to have a role, but they are not the, the the concept of earning targets is, is a skill obviously is so important. And and the top receiver on the team is the one earning it. And typically those are the ones that we already knew coming in are pretty good. And and we were drafting a lot higher. So I I firmly believe that these issues with projections that we've laid out and, and as it relates to player skill, it totally reinforces all that we know about, about structural drafting. And so when you start feeling yourself getting away from structural drafting, like this is why, I mean, this is, it's exactly why on the first episode uh, when you said it was the whole ball game, when I was kind of pitching this idea to you and you said that it made me like so happy to hear it. First of all, just like, yes, I'm glad we're on the same page. Uh, But secondly, it was just this idea that like uh, that, that, you know, we're going to lay this out very well, I think in a way that that people are going to be able to understand it and, this is the whole ballgame. It is, and and so you need you need to have sort of this draft thought as you're doing your drafts. You know, I, I have likened it to a swing thought in golf before. You know, I, I hit better shots when I have my good swing thoughts. Uh, your draft thought needs to not be worried about the things that tug at you when you're trying to draft structurally efficient. That you need more running backs, or you need to fill certain spots in your roster. You need to have a draft thought that player structure is what has led us to the 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 things that we know to be efficient structurally. And those are the things that, you know, we need to keep seeking out.
1: I love that, Ben. We promised some player picks after the break. We're gonna look at some of these running back, backfields, this idea of small gap versus large back gap. And if even we should be holding that closely to that in certain areas, we're gonna give you some running back discussion after the break. All right, then, so every year we have a lot of running back committees that are very interesting to fantasy owners because if you need a back, you may want to get that guy who has the early season volume at least to bridge you across to where you can get some of these free agent additions. Maybe if you don't need a back or if you're kind of crazy like Blair and I were when we did our extreme zero RB draft last year in FFPC and didn't take a running back until round 11, and you're just saying, let's go for the... The more talented guy who do you like in some of these backfields what backfields do you want to talk about here and one of the questions that i have is so we know that in a committee the less expensive guy is the person who historically has had the better win rate i've suggested i think that in large part that's because a lot of these committees have the more talented player as the backup to start the season which obviously makes them less expensive most of the time. That's not always true right now. Travis Etienne, the Jaguars are trying to claim, uh, may be behind James Robinson. He is more expensive. So that kind of leads me to this question of if the more expensive guy in a committee we also think is more talented, should we go ahead and emphasize that element and assume that sort of as these things wash out and look at the overall averages, that really what we're seeing again is this idea of talent as opposed to some other dynamic going on.
2: Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I, I, I agree with you that it is shifting a little bit over time. And, and that's a really important thing that we're going to dive into, I think, a lot on this podcast is that a lot of the trends that we look at, we have to be aware that the NFL is a constantly evolving league. It's something that I try to keep very close in mind in all, all of the content that I do, um, that you can look at past trends. And they a lot of times they, they look very stable, but because the league itself changes, it, it can impact things. And in this case, because the fantasy football market is, is evolving. Uh, it can change things. And like in, in that particular example, I, I prefer Etienne at cost to, to James Robinson at cost for some of the reasons we talked about on the last show where we talked about how young players, um, you know, gain volume. How, how, we didn't get into this as much, but um, it's more work that Blair has shown and, and, and how valuable and you yourself have shown as well, how valuable rookies can be in redraft, How how big their breakouts are when they do hit. Um, and then I've talked a lot about high value touches in, in my work. And, and to me, the fact that ETN starting in a role that's going to probably see a lot more targets. Now, this is a little bit more of a projection-based thing, but at running back, you have to do this a little bit. You have to understand who's going to be seeing the valuable touches. That is also an element in his favor. So um, there, there's these multiple layers in almost every situation when we get more specific um, in, in this particular one. I'm looking at the the larger picture the big picture etn's a first round pick has a, a very strong prospect profile and is somebody that we should be very optimistic about long term you would you i would I would argue that several years ago he probably would be going behind James Robinson but that's like you said it's not happening and and that's probably an improvement by drafters but i I, I think that's correct I think that that's actually one where we want to go against those um, split backfield trends and target the f-
1: the more expensive back you mentioned the high-value touches. I think that's really interesting within this context too. Of why is the less expensive back within the committee does that have a higher win rate? Now, partly you just know that's a higher win rate because you don't have to be as right when it, when a back goes later. And I think that that also leads me to this question about the high-value touches and some work you've done on trap backs and vice versa. The idea of the percentage of touches that are valuable to us from a fantasy perspective. I think often the case is that the less expensive back is also the one who actually is going to have a higher percentage of their touches are valuable. And so you have another area there kind of working in your favor. As I'm drafting in general, and certainly as I'm drafting running backs, I want there to be this element where I have to be less right. And so one of the things that's nice about zero running back is that you know, you're going to be drafting this handful of backs late, They have these profiles that you like, you know, that by the fact that they're being drafted outside the single digit rounds that there are issues, right? And it's a a matter of not all of these guys are going to hit. And so you don't have to have them hit in the same way that someone who is starting running back, running back, running back has to have his guys hit. How much of that, the, the trap element, the high value element and how right you have to be at different points in the draft factors into what we're seeing here as well. I don't know. I'm, I'm actually kind of curious about your
2: answer to that one. I, I'm going to, I'm going to kick it back to you. Like, like genuinely, I, I'm curious
1: where you're leading on this. I want to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So I, I think that it is right. So we're looking for guys who are athletic, who can create big plays who are more talented than the back in front of them and guys who catch passes. Right. And so we don't have to have nearly as many touches for them to score points, do work. So the backs that, that Blair and I ended up with, we actually missed on James Robinson. We didn't bet, bid enough. Uh, we were so frustrated about that all year long. And then it worked out in the end anyway, but we ended up with Heinz and McKissick as the players who were starting for us and actually beating these other elite teams because of the other pieces we had on our roster in our starting lineup. Those guys catching the passes scored points without having to be the big time star. So let's take that into this question of some of these backfields. One backfield that I think is a little bit controversial and partly because we don't know about Aaron Rodgers, but Aaron Jones, AJ Dillon, we know Jones is the star. This is one of those backfields where I don't think there's any question who the guy who's going to score the most points will be. But when we're talking about talent, right? And we're looking at AJ Dillon. We're sort of pointing in two different directions. Number one, we know that his prospect profile had a ton of similarities to Derrick Henry, a player who is drafted in the first round almost exclusively on talent because his profile is actually not that great for fantasy. But then that takes us back to Dillon where his profile is not that great for fantasy either. Do you have any interest in Dillon as a zero running back candidate? Can he steal touches from Aaron Jones because he's just that big of a talent now maybe it's a completely fluky game but we have the profile we have that game in the snow where he actually looked like Derrick Henry yeah can he be a guy who zero running back owners want to have if Aaron Jones goes down could A.J. Dillon be a top 10 running back
2: yeah I mean we loved his his dominator you know dominator rating running back dominator rating his profile out of college he just was their whole offense at Boston College he has all the athleticism he hits on all of these these boxes that we want him to hit on the question of whether he can catch passes is really interesting because they, they basically didn't throw at Boston College, and it's something we talk about with, with some of these backs that don't get thrown to in college. When they're used that heavily uh, in the ground game, it's almost uh, an unnecessary element. They don't need to throw to them. They can just hand off to him at that level. But the Packers are going to throw to their backs to some degree. They're probably going to throw to Jones Moore, sort of how I would project it. But there is no Jamal Williams there, which made it really tricky for Dylan last year and so Dylan's gonna play. He's gonna be on the field and he's probably gonna get targets because of that. I, I mean I really like that. And I, I feel confident about his skill because we, we liked his profile and what we saw from him last year. He played well. And they felt that they seemed more willing to to use him later on as he was playing well. Um use him a little bit in the playoffs as well. So he's a guy that that I yeah, I really like for those reasons. I mean, I think he has phenomenal upside. I don't want to say that just because he's a bigger back, he can't catch passes. People were saying that about Jonathan Taylor last year. I had a really interesting stat on him where if you go back and look at his uh, rushing efficiency, it was phenomenal on a game-by-game basis all through college. There's a few games where it wasn't as good, and in those games, his receiving volume spiked. And it was sort of like they weren't able to run on, and it was mostly against more elite teams that Wisconsin played, some of the better teams in the Big Ten and some of the teams they played in bowl games that were really good. Then, then they would start to try to find ways to get to manufacture touches and get balls into his hands. And you were talking about these secondary backs being more talented, and it, and it is interesting that, you know, if we go all the way to receiver prospect profiles, how we've seen in the past that when teams in college manufacture um, touches for them, whether it's rushing, whether it's punt returns or kick returns, that tends to be a good predictor. These teams know who's good. They know who they want to get the ball to. And the fact that the, the players that are catching passes, it's not just that the passes are valuable. It's that the teams want to make sure to find ways to get the ball into their hands. And so, yeah, like if Jones goes down, I don't see anyone else coming in and being this big receiver for them. I think they'll want to get the ball into AJ Dylan's hands. He'll catch enough passes. He'll be fine. And I think even with Jones in the lineup, he's probably going to catch a few passes and do a little bit more of the Jamal Williams type stuff. Then I think people realize, um, yeah, I really like him in that in that scenario, just from a skill perspective, because I think they're going to want to, to feed him touches.
1: I agree. How about one that maybe is in some ways the opposite of that, where we have Josh Jacobs, we have Kenyon Drake. How much of this, in terms of concerns for Jacobs, is it that Drake is going to come in and steal the high value touches, even though actually the Cardinals were using Chase Edmonds for at least the receiving portion of the high value touches last year. And how much of this might be something where we actually question how talented now the Raiders think Jacobs is.
2: This is, this is one I I've kind of thrown my hands up because as you said, Drake sort of profiled as this pass catching back, but has been not that at the NFL level. Um So I'm going to kick another question back to you. I'm going to make you break this one down. I want to hear your thoughts.
1: I think the Raiders are overconfident in terms of how talented Drake is. He's one of these guys who has the athleticism and you would think would be a good receiver. But when I talked before about someone who has had four out of five seasons of being very good versus someone four or five seasons of being mediocre, I mean, Drake is the guy who is consistently mediocre, right? He had that one spike with the Cardinals where he finished fast, scored a bunch of points. The Cardinals thought he could be a big part of their offense. They come back the next season, they keep handing it to him, even though he runs into the line and falls down. He scores some points because Kyler Murray did a fantastic job of getting them down to the goal line, and then he got those goal line touches. But overall, he struggled as a player, so now they go in a different direction. And then Jacob's a a similar kind of thing, someone who was overdrafted at the NFL level, uh, both in terms of positional value and probably in terms of how good he actually was. The Raiders used some other backs, even in important situations last year when he's standing on the sideline healthy. I think there are some questions about the talent in that offense. So that's one where I'm almost avoiding both players, even though you would think you know, there should be a situation here where someone could have some scenario-based running back value, but I'm skeptical of the talent. Yeah, and that's that's, that's sort of how I've been playing it as well. What were you saying? The Cardinals? Yeah, I the Cardinals. So we have Drake leaving. They liked Edmonds as a receiver last year. He created some big plays. He had the game when Drake was gone, was injured, and extremely inefficient. They seemed to completely sour on using him as the running portion of the attack, but also soured on Drake. So Drake leaves, and now they bring in James Conner, how should we be looking at this backfield in terms of, number one, from a projection perspective, and then secondly, from a, a talent perspective, where are you going with your drafts on these two guys? Yeah, I, and
2: I haven't been taking Edmonds because he falls into sort of that running back dead zone. And this is interesting. It's similar to the the ETN one where I would have liked Edmonds to be the cheaper of the two and it would have been easy to take him in the ninth round, but instead Connor's the one going in the ninth round. And it does feel like, you know, Connor's. Contract was small. It was a one-year, maybe $2 million deal, I think. Um, nothing too exciting. In in fact, a lot smaller than I think people probably would expect, fantasy people. We, we tend to, in the fantasy community, I think, sort of overvalue players that have done well from a fantasy perspective relative to to sort of how the NFL sees them. And it's, it's important to recognize that, like, his market wasn't big. At the same time, the way that they used Drake last year, and Drake wasn't good, it just it – just, feels very much like James Conner is going to be used in a similar way. And so when I find myself doing these, you know, one anchor drafts, one anchor running back, you know, modified zero RB running back drafts, <laughs> I find myself staring at him in the ninth round sometimes. And he makes a lot of sense as an RB two because I think he's going to get a lot of touches. He's going to be in that Kenyon Drake role. And it's a lot easier to pull the trigger on him at that price and feel pretty confident that he's going to at least play a decent amount and probably get some goal line work. They kept feeding it to, to Drake last year, as you noted. So that's how i wind up playing it but
1: i don't love it (laughs) i don't love it at all yeah I, i think it is tricky for me once someone has been injured as an nfl running back and has come back and not played well then they're more or less off my board right because we just we see so rarely that that trajectory then lends itself back to the breakout i prefer to have unproven types of players who we know they have athleticism. We know they're productive at the college level. We know it's a big jump, but maybe they get a chance and they make the move. We're not exactly seeing this with Arizona, like the opportunities to target some of those guys. Now we still love, you know, Benjamin, but they sent a pretty strong message about where they felt like he was based on how they played last season. The thing with Drake or this, I'm sorry, the thing with Connor, and I would be interested to kind of get your sense of where you think Connor is from a talent perspective now, how much of last season was just actually getting another couple of, of minor injuries. How much of it was that the Steelers had a very, very poor run blocking team within the context of also playing some good run stopping defenses. And then for me, when we talk about contingencies, right, we talk about different scenarios that can play out. We think that Connor could be that goal line guy. And last year, I mean, Drake is going at the beginning of round two based on his role in Arizona. Now we're thinking maybe it won't be quite to the same extent, but Connor is going in round nine with the same basic role. Those are the the big gaps in ADP that I would be looking to target. But then also we know that back when he was healthy, back when he was a decent NFL football player, Connor was an elite receiver. Right. There's the receiving side. Absolutely. If Edmonds gets hurt, then you're talking about maybe this yep. monster workload, which for Edmonds I don't think is the case. And so for him to be more expensive it is maybe off.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I I, I don't I agree with everything you said. I don't like the, the the play from the contract perspective or from the fact that he's been injured. He's older, and, and he's probably just in the decline phase of his career. But this is one of those guys that's not completely off my board because I do see scenarios where he could – really crush ADP. And part of that is because he's going a lot later than I would have expected him to go in prior seasons. And, and that's, that gets back to sort of some of the, the changing trends that we are talking about. And then the other part of it, uh, it, it's, it can't just be that because if it's just that, then we're just using faulty sort of projection math, to prop up the player. The other part of it is I can see some scenarios, you know, where, where he winds up catching passes too. And then he has the, the, the high value touch, he has both sides of the high value touches. He has th- that role plus all the, the you know, the cheap volume, which again, coming out of the ninth round makes that more palatable, even if he's bad, you know, even, even if he's bad, but he just gets the veteran, uh, the veteran deference the the receiving side of it, that he actually has that in his profile. Now Drake maybe did two before he came to Arizona and they didn't really use it, but you never know how teams are going to use players. And so I'm open to, sort of, you know, this unknown, you know, playing out in his favor a little bit.
1: In terms of a big gap kind of guy, in terms of people we talk about as a high-end handcuff, and in terms of this question again of talent, I'd like you to hear your take on Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard, right? We have Elliott showing so many signs of someone last year who was going to go the Le'Veon Bell, David Johnson, Todd Gurley route, and be more or less done but we also know that he was a little banged up. So if he gets healthier again, then maybe that completely changes things. We know he didn't have his quarterback. We know he didn't have his offensive line, but we did see Tony Pollard jump out and have a monster game when he was out and generally do more with his touches overall. Is this a backfield where Pollard is actually going to earn enough standalone value to be a good value at that ADP? Is there any chance that he actually wins the job by midseason and if Elliott goes down with an injury, is Tony Pollard a top 10 running back or does he stay kind of in that 10 to 20 range?
2: It, it's funny. We keep having, you know, we, we've we've kind of zeroed in on running backs. I think running backs is the hardest part of this, right? Because running back skill is the hardest to define, I think. And so much of it is more volume based. So it, it is a little tricky. And with Elliott, I, I he's uh, virtually off my board, but I do believe that Jerry Jones and, and sort of the politics of his large contract are going to dictate that he's going to still be pretty involved i don't think that even if i think pollard is a better back that pollard really has a lot of paths to beat him uh because they're so tied to elliot financially not just through this year but through next as well so um it's a tricky thing uh with dallas there's a little bit more context to it where i think best case scenario for pollard with a healthy elliot is that they're sort of splitting and i think that's possible because pollard has looked so explosive at times but and I like him as a pick because Elliot can also get hurt, I think. And, and he is one that feels like he's on the decline phase. We don't see elite backs who start to look bad like he did last year, suddenly become elite again. And, and that was a point you just made, but it's, it's very, very true. I always say with running backs, don't pay for past production. And, and Elliot's still being drafted in the first round based on his past production, based on the past seasons that were elite, but he didn't do it last year. And, and that is very crucial to how you should value running backs, in my opinion, and, and, clearly in yours too, as you referenced with Connor. So I yeah, he, he could have a great year. I could be completely wrong, but uh, I won't draft him in any
1: league. Finish out the listeners some good zero running back targets at the end. Is there anything interesting we should know about either Houston or Tampa Bay in terms of where you're drafting these guys?
2: Houston's a tough one. I mean, it's a bad offense. We know they're going to be bad. They're not going to generate a lot of uh, green zone opportunities. They're not going to generate a lot of touchdowns. Phillip Lindsay is probably the best play from a cost perspective and from a youth perspective and and for potentially a a skill perspective. But I I think it's going to be hard to imagine him getting goal line touches, very few goal line touches already over guys like David Johnson and Mark Ingram who've had so much of those types of roles in their past. And then you know if Tyron Taylor's playing, you're also not going to get many targets from a mobile quarterback. So it's a really challenging um, backfield. I tend to avoid crowded backfields on teams that I'm pretty confident are going to be bad. If I'm if I'm approaching bad offenses, I, I want to have pretty good confidence in, in the fact that not necessarily the, the players are already the star or, or the lead back, but in the fact that they are going to at least likely to use a lead back structure. And this is a team that brought in so many players that I think they're all going to get touches. And so you, you don't want crowded backfields on bad offenses, in my opinion. Tampa's an interesting one because it's also crowded. I like Geo. I mean, I, I always have been a Geo Bernard fan. You know that. I think Ronald Jones and Leonard Fournette both look so bad in the passing game that they're they're going to both kind of be relegated to a split early down role, and they're going to have big games at times. They're going to be hot-handish like they were last year, and they're both going to get plenty of car- uh, carries, but they're going to be pretty trappy. And I think Geo's is the one that actually has, uh, at cost especially, the potential to carve out a pretty valuable receiving role that is at least interesting in, in certain contexts. So. He's the one that I actually like the most, even having been a Ron Jones fan in the past.
1: Yeah, I think that that is right. Uh, I think the talent there is with Jones. I think that the high-value touches to Price is with Bernard. The thing that worries me for both of them is just that Fournette is the guy who could squeeze both of them out. right? So if we had it back, end up with a lot of high-value touches from that offense, and it would probably Fournette, based on the fact that we could see him getting both goal line and receiving even though he is a poor receiving back so we wouldn't really expect that with the Texans I do like Lindsay you know we go back always or I go back to this idea of the talented guy I think that Lindsay is a big play waiting to happen the unfortunate thing is as you mentioned it's almost impossible to see where you would get high value touches from and that does matter for fantasy it does matter for putting your zero RB guys together I think for me, the fact that Lindsay is a last round type of pick in terms of where he currently is going makes it something where, you know, I would like to see how they play in week one. If I don't need that roster spot in free agency after week one, I'd like to see how he plays in week two. But I think the talent there uh, is intriguing, and I think we can do it because of the price. So you're, t- you're telling me that you're going to be cutting Philip Lindsay after week one in every week. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's going to do it for Stealing Bananas on Road to Biz Radio. I'm Sean Siegel. You can follow me on Twitter at FF underscore contrarian. Love to have those followers for when I make my triumphant return to Twitter in the distant future. My co-host is the incomparable Ben You Make sure you follow him at Yards for Leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast app, and we'll see you next time.